0: Robin Bartlett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Robin, it's an honor to have you on. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, Joe, I am a a Vietnam veteran and I recently wrote a book called Vietnam Combat Firefights and Writing History. I come from a military family. My grandfather went to West Point. My father went to West Point. My brother went to West Point, And I actually turned down an appointment to West Point because uh, at the age of uh, 7, 18, I had attended uh, 13 elementary and middle schools and four high schools. And I said, that is enough of the military for me. But as I entered college in Southern California, it was the buildup of the Vietnam War. And some of my classmates actually got uh, reclassified during the summer. And uh, there was a tradition in my family of serving as an officer, and we took uh, service to our country very, very seriously. So I went into the ROTC program, came out as a distinguished military graduate, and at the ripe age of 21, with a college degree, knowing everything there was to know, I decided to volunteer for the most challenging thing that I could think of. And that was airborne, ranger, and assignment to the 82nd Airborne Division as a paratrooper. And I got everything that I asked for and more.
0: Wow. I want to get into, one, your book, Vietnam Combat, Firefights, and Writing History. And uh, I'm going to do my best to ask good questions and get out of the way and let your story tell itself. But before we do that, uh, I want to start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Well, that's a
1: good question. I I was in a military family, and uh, we lived all over the United States and Europe. I was born in California, so I sort of feel like California was my home. But the longest period of time I ever spent in California was the four years that I went to college in Southern California.
0: From walking away from West Point. How'd you get the itch to go 82nd Airborne Ranger? That's, that's a big turnaround. How'd that happen? Well, I went through the ROTC program, and so wh- so what made you do that? So ROTC. What, what made you do ROTC when you? Well, you I, walked away I did from not.
1: I did not wish to be drafted, and there was a family tradition that uh, you would serve as an officer. My family took uh, military service very, very seriously. The words in service to our country actually were very, very meaningful to us. If if we were asked, what what does your father do? I would say he's in service to our country. Yeah. So, uh, again, military tradition from for three generations. And I did not wish to go on to graduate school, and I did not wish to be drafted. It was the height of the Vietnam War, and I, I went through the ROTC program. It was second nature to me when i graduated i i kind of had a little talk to jesus moment and said you know you've never done anything that's been terribly challenging in your life what can you think of that is the most challenging thing you could do mm-hmm. and uh, that that's what i chose plus i i volunteered to be to go infantry so i was infantry officer second lieutenant commissioned on the same day that i graduated and two days later with everything in my car, I was driving across the United States to go to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, home of the 82nd
0: Airborne Division. Wow. You get to Fort Bragg. Take us from there.
1: I was, um, I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina for about uh, four to five weeks waiting for off- orders, sending me down to Fort Benning, Georgia to dump- jump school. And at the time, I was what, what they call a leg, meaning I was not jump qualified. And my company commander had the foresight uh, not to assign me to as a platoon leader because all of my men would have been jump qualified and I was not. So I worked in his office and uh, learned some of the ropes. I graduated from jump school, that's four weeks long. Then I went through infantry officers' basic course, which was eight weeks long, and then ranger school. And I was uh, in the same class as the graduating. Infantry officers from West Point, all of whom were in a very tight click, and so we had the distinguished military graduates out of ROTC, and we had the graduating infantry class out of uh, West Point. So there was it was quite an interesting dichotomy of two different groups of people, and not a lot of respect going either way.
0: So is the training hard enough, and is the training engaged enough, where at some point those boundaries fall and you guys start I- integrating and? Respecting each other? Or does that happen during training?
1: No, it did not. And part of the training was something called a buddy rating. And the members of your squad would rate one another. And after the first uh, quarter of ranger school, I was in danger of failing the course because I was poorly rated by by the West Pointers. The good thing that happened to me is that I came down with bronchial pneumonia and I got recycled to the next course next class of ranger school. And that class was the artillery officers out of West Point. And then I had a little bit of of knowledge about what was coming at us. So I was the expert and knew when to volunteer and when not to volunteer. Plus, the the artillery officers were a little more less gung-ho than the infantry officers. So we got along very, very well. And there was much more camaraderie with that group than with the West Point infantry officers. And I would say, generally speaking, that continued on throughout the entire time that I was in the service. West Pointers stick among themselves, stick to themselves. They're called ring knockers. Ring (laughs) knockers. Ring knockers. That's right. They all wear their West Point
0: rings. (laughs) Do you remember the point when they told you Ranger school was over and you got the Ranger tag?
1: I remember it like it was yesterday. It was an emotional moment for me. It was the height of, it was the most challenging thing I think that I have ever done in my life. It was the most physically and mentally demanding course that the Army has to offer still to this day. I I think that SEAL training is perhaps more demanding physically, but the Ranger School Uh, took you to the point of physical and mental exhaustion. And then when you reach that point, that's when they put you in charge and said, take over and lead the unit. And uh, uh, it it was a proud, proud moment when our ranger sergeant who was in charge of our unit pinned that ranger tab on my shoulder. And I still have that tab to this day.
0: Uh, That's awesome. So let's get to your book. All right. So chapter one, great first title. It starts off my first worst day in Vietnam. You graduate ranger school. How soon from ranger school do you head off to Nam? What's that? The, the time? For? So
1: I came back to the 82nd Airborne Division, made 32 jumps, an officer, had to jump at least once a month. And I went through a pretty rigorous uh, program with the 82nd. Uh, and received orders uh, transferring me to the 101st Airborne Division. They wanted to keep airborne officers in airborne units. So I went to Vietnam thinking that I was going to be joining the 101st Airborne Division. When I arrived in Vietnam, it was right after the Tet Offensive of 1968, which was the turning point of the war, both for within the United States and also in Vietnam. The U.S. suffered substantial casualties, but nowhere near the number of casualties that we inflicted on the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army. It was certainly 10 to 1. But it, it did change the attitude and the opinion of the American public. And because of the casualties of, of officers, especially, I was uh, told at the replacement depot that all all, all orders were canceled. And just to stand by. So three days later, I was assigned to the first cab division, first cavalry division. Mm -hmm. And they were, this is the air mobile division. And that was the strategy that this particular division followed throughout the war. Uh, we had more helicopters in that division than in all of Vietnam. And the concept of the air mobile concept was simply that. You brought fresh troops to the scene of the battle by helicopter into landing zones, as opposed to having them have walked through the jungle or to the battle. You arrived with fresh troops by helicopter. Mm. Sometimes those landing zones were hot. So
0: let's go to the book. Vietnam Firefights, Chapter One. My first worst day in Vietnam.
1: That starts... That's a discussion about, well, first of all, we were able to carry lighter weight packs than my comrades in other divisions because we were able to carry more water, more ammunition, and because we got resupplied by helicopter practically every day. And that was a plus. My pack weighed about 45 pounds compared to uh, some of my other officers who would carry 70 pounds, 75 pounds acclimatization was a key factor in the first three weeks of Vietnam because the average temperature was 105 and occasionally it got up to 115. So after a three-week period, you began to adjust to the heat. As I took over my platoon of between 28 and 32 men, there was a period of time for all new soldiers coming in, officers included you were an FNG. That's an new guy. <laughs> and you were an F a new guy until you got acclimatized and you learned the protocols of the first cab division and the units that we were assigned to. I had a soldier come into my unit who had was a Sergeant E5, and he had the rank technically of being the squad leader. My squad leaders were all SP4s. That's one rank below the sergeant. And this sergeant had gone through a six month course at Fort Benning, Georgia, which was called the Instant NCO course. And he was gung ho. He wanted to get his kill, he wanted to get his medals. He carried uh, way too much weight Mm -hmm. on his back. And we tried to get him to lighten his load, we tried to get him oriented toward the way we did things but he wanted to take over he wanted to be in charge he was gung ho first thing he did to me bid with me when he showed up in my unit was salute me and mm-hmm. i told him make that the last salute you ever give me and don't you <laughs> er, ever call me sir you know a, a platoon leader's life expectancy in vietnam was 90 days wow and i i could talk about uh, the reasons why I think I survived those 90 days. But this soldier, Roberts, just wouldn't quit. But I refused to make him a squad leader until I felt more confident that he could lead a squad. My my other squad leaders had much more time in the field and experience. Mm-hmm. So one of the squads was uh, to go out on an, on a patrol, and he volunteered to go with him, with that patrol. He wanted the experience. Mm-hmm. And I said okay you can go but you are not the leader and you will take orders from the squad leader and he agreed to do that. They got into a sniper fire, a sniper activity and this soldier stood up ran directly at the sniper with a hand grenade thinking that he could knock out the sniper and the sniper shot him in the head. Wow. So the men brought him back to me carried him back and it was the officer's, it is the officer's responsibility to take care of the body. And that meant searching the pockets, making sure there was, you know, anything personal needed to come out of the pockets and put in a plastic bag to go back to the battalion headquarters. And um, my medic gave me what we called a death card, which was basically a three by five card with a hole punched in it and a piece of string. Okay. And for the first time, the army actually wrote down The coordinates where soldiers, uh, as close as you could uh, estimate, where soldiers were actually killed. So they were able to track pretty accurately where those soldiers had died. And it was my job to put that card on his boot along with a dog tag. The other dog tag remained around his neck, filled out the card. And we didn't have body bags, we had ponchos. So we wrapped him in his poncho. And uh, I had a ball of twine because the ponchos would flap around when the helicopters came in to deliver logistic supplies. And that's when we would put the body back on to the helicopter to go back to the rear. And I I would tie off the the poncho around the head and the waist and the feet so that it wouldn't flap around. That was my first KIA killed in action. Would not be my last. But it because it was the first, it, it really was a traumatic experience, one what, I'll never forget.
0: What goes through your mind? Did you see him get shot? Or is that, did you just, did you realize it when they brought the body back to you?
1: I realized it when they brought the body back. I, I did not go on that
0: patrol. And when you see that particular person who you thought may get himself in trouble with the way, uh, just, just how aggressive they were, what, what, what goes through your mind when you, you see that person come back?
1: He fit the mold of being super gung-ho, and that was just not not a very good way to be in that combat environment that we were in. You had to act as a team, and you had to act, especially if you were in a leadership situation, could not afford to be a John Wayne type of, type of individual. Mm-hmm. It just was not healthy. He wouldn't survive, and he did not.
0: Take me even a step back further. When you first got off the plane and you landed in Vietnam, what were your initial impressions? Was it what you thought? How was it like and how was it different than what you trained for and what you thought about getting in there?
1: I was scared shitless. <laughs> I was scared. I was on a, a flight of mostly second lieutenants, all of whom who had just about one year in service. And none of us knew where we were going. I mean, because all of the casualties as a result of the Tet Offensive of 68, we all got reassigned. Some went on to the 101st. I did not. Um, And then we all went to different units and had different experiences. And so all of the people that I knew from the 82nd, I lost all those relationships. Mm -hmm. Ended up with uh, three other officers who came to my battalion. Uh, Went through uh, acclimatization and some refresher training, and then ultimately were assigned uh, to my battalion, the 1st Battalion of 5th Cavalry Regiment. And uh, on the day we met our battalion commander, we were all promoted to 1st Lieutenant. So after one year, I was promoted to 1st Lieutenant. Mm -hmm. By comparison, it took my brother four years, took my father eight years to make 1st Lieutenant. But that was because of the casualties and the need for for officers. Uh, So there were four officers who went into the battalion commander's bunker on that day. And uh, we went in an alphabetical order. So I went in first. And the battalion commander was literally dead on his feet. I don't think he'd slept in two days. And he gave us the uh, two-minute prep talk. I I don't remember anything that he said. He said to the S-1, who is the personnel officer, where do we need these officers? And he, he said, the S-1 said, well, we need one in A, two in B, and one in C. So that's how I got assigned to A Company. And of those four officers, I was the only one to complete my tour. The other three officers were either killed or wounded. So luck of alphabetical
0: order, I guess. Wow. I guess at some point luck plays a role, right? I mean, it does. uh, all the training, all the amazing training, Ranger, Airborne, you know, you're probably as well-trained as anyone there, but luck plays a factor, doesn't it?
1: Well, it does. And I I also, I think I did three things that helped me to survive my tour. What are they? Well, number one was I tried very, very hard not to do stupid stuff. Okay. (laughs) And believe it or not, it's easy to do stupid stuff.
0: Don't do the stupid stuff. Give me me an idea. Well, I had a a fellow officer
1: who had been in the 82nd Airborne Division, and he was calling in a helicopter, landing a helicopter in a landing zone. And you give hand signals to the pilot because he can't really see uh, the dimensions of the landing zone. So you're giving hand signals. And he stood on a a mound. Mm. He stood on a mound as the helicopter landed. Not a smart thing to do because the helicopter blades just took off his head. No. Yes. So number two, when I joined my platoon, my com- my company and met my pl- platoon sergeants and squad leaders, I sat down with them and I said, you guys have been in the field longer than I have. I'm still going to be the leader, but I want you to tell me if you think I'm doing something wrong and I want your advice and I want your input. Now, I may not agree with you, but I want you to feel comfortable and confident to tell me, uh, especially if you have feelings about uh, whatever it is we're doing that you think might be wrong or there's a better way. And then number three, and perhaps the most important, is that I trusted my point man and cover man because we were operating primarily um, near the Laotian border. And this was jungless, jungle, three canopy jungle, yeah. um, single file, cutting your way through uh, dense underbrush. And if the point man and cover man alerted or felt uncomfortable, if there were no birds singing, if there were no monkeys chirping, they would call me forward and I would. I trusted their intuition. And what I ended up doing was something called reconnaissance by fire. So I fired artillery rounds up in front of us to where we were going to be walking through. And I fired so much artillery that the battery that supported us put a budget of 25 rounds on me. I could not shoot more than 25 rounds, but that was enough. That was sufficient. To make my platoon feel comfortable about going through an area that just didn't seem right.
0: Wow, that's phenomenal. So that twenty-five now is that twenty-five rounds a day, or permission, or what, what was that permission? 20, permission. permission and yeah. how long would a mission last?
1: Well, it, it, it essentially every day, each platoon would go out on a and cover an area of maybe five to eight kilometers from the night defensive position. So each platoon would go in, you know, one third of a circle Uh, and it would depend a great deal upon what the terrain was like. You might be going up and down a mountain. You might, you might be walking through a, a stream bed. It might take you two or three hours. It might take you five or six.
0: Wow. So just to recap there, the three things you said that kept you safe, the, the reason why you survived and we're speaking right now, one, don't do stupid stuff. I mean, that right. is, that's phenomenal. You can bring that. You can give that. That's great parenting advice. That's great advice for business. Don't do stupid stuff. Oh my gosh, that's phenomenal. And then number two, you basically went on like a listening tour, like advice. Like You said, hey, you've been here longer than me. I just got here. Um, I listened,
1: I listened to my subordinates.
0: You listened to maybe maybe somebody was there for a year already, right? They were there for 10 months. Well, certainly and... certainly
1: longer than I was. Yes, that's the pl- My advice. platoon sergeant is supposed to be was supposed to be the most experienced man in the unit. Typically, uh-huh. a platoon sergeant has between t- about 10 years of service. okay. My platoon sergeant was an instant NCO. He went through a six month course. Came out as the Sergeant E6, and he had about as much training as I did. Oh, wow. So, and he, he had his 18th birthday in Vietnam. I was 22.
0: Oh, my gosh. So it's an 18-year-old. I was the second,
1: second oldest man in my unit. The old man was 24.
0: My goodness. And you forget that. Like watching a war movie or hearing, reading a war book, you forget. Like they're 18, 19, 20 year old kids doing this. That is amazing. Ninety
1: percent. Ninety percent of my platoon were draftees. Ten percent were were volunteers. So they were they were mostly draftees.
0: Okay, and I want to get back to the Ninety dra- percent draftees in a second. But the th- just the third point you make: trust your point and cover people. I love That's your right. thought. Like you're walking through the jungle and you hear no birds chirping. I'm like, my goodness, I never thought of that. But now that makes so much sense. Like, there's something going on that's someone somewhere that makes the bird stop chirping. You or- know it, yeah.
1: it could also be smells. It could be smells. We walked into an enemy base camp and we discovered it because my point man stepped in the latrine.
0: Oh, my gosh, really? That's how it, we discovered that we were in an enemy base camp. And how far, when you step in the latrine, how far are you from contact with the enemy?
1: Well, fortunately, in this particular case, they had already left. Okay. We just gotcha. discovered their camp.
0: Gotcha. Oh my gosh. That is wild. And like when you step there, can you know and you stop and look around, can you see oh, this is a camp or you still couldn't tell once you stepped? Like, is it well that listen? When when you come when you encounter a latrine, yeah. you know it. You know, you know that, yeah, that, there's something that. going on here because people don't
1: dig latrines no in the kid. middle of the jungle. that is
0: <laughs> Wow. And then you mentioned ninety percent drafted ten percent ten percent volunteers, volunteers. of that ninety percent, this is me just reading books and talking to veterans, is there a higher percentage of that ninety percent that don't want to be there, not really on board? They just want to get home? Where you're not volunteering for that, maybe they're forced to be there. You see, maybe that they're not maybe your ideal partner in a firefight situation. And is that true or not true? That that's uh, a fallacy. It, it,
1: in my case, uh, I think you know any anyone who was drafted at that period of time, just as I did, knew where they were headed for, and what you wanted to do was get as much training and okay. much expertise as possible to survive your tour. Got you. An officer only had to spend six to seven months in the field. Then you took over a staff job. However, uh-huh. a grunt, a soldier, was there for 12 months. After 11, many of them started to get kind of squirrely. Yeah. So we would let them go back to the rear and for the last month, and they'd find something
0: for them to do. Wow you mentioned about artillery you sent you you're the 25 round limit how many times did you shoot artillery and you're like thank god i did because there was bad news ahead for us C- could you tell when that would happen
1: occasionally now? occasionally we would find blood trails as we went through the area the main reason i did that was to reassure my men especially the point man and, and sometimes sometimes it would just be an uneasy feeling Mm-hmm. You had to trust that intuitive feelings that these men would have because they're walk they're walking at the front of the line, single file. They are in th- the worst position possible. Next to me, perhaps, because I'm walking with the radio operator right behind me and a yeah. map in my pocket. So I'm a target as well.
0: When you're going through triple canopy jungle and they're cutting literally with the machete, right? They're just cutting through with the how many times do snakes pop out or something like that? Like how common is that when you're cutting through the jungle and and just you cut and there's something crazy is in front of you.
1: It would happen. Uh, Often the point man would trip and fall. And he was the only one that carried his weapon on full automatic and, Mm. and he'd trip and fall and pull the trigger. And then of course, everybody would hit the ground uh, thinking that he was being ambushed, but it was just a trip and fall. But really in the deep, deep jungle like that, you have a problem with humidity, intense humidity. So if you had 100, 105 degree temperature, uh, you had to rotate the point man every 15 minutes or so. Otherwise, they would just keel over and with heat exhaustion or heat stroke.
0: Well, I'm sure there's uh, so many badasses there where the person doesn't want to give up point even though you see they're fried. How did you handle stuff like that? Where maybe you know they're done, but they're like, no, I'm fine. How, how do you do we just situation
1: we just rotated it every man every man in the unit took took his turn at point
0: okay wow
1: and we rotated it among the squads as well so the first squad would have it one day and then the second squad would have it the next day and the third squad would have it the third day and just kept rotating
0: gotcha how fast do you build camaraderie and like interactions when you're in that intense of an environment Right. Even if you're from West Point or you're in ROTC, you're from Texas, you're from Maine, you're from Philly, you're from California. Like pretty soon, you develop a pretty strong bond, right? Like how long? How quick does that happen?
1: Well, it didn't. To be honest with you, an officer so, as an officer, um, we did not call each other by our names. Everybody had a, either a, a nickname. My my name was uh, 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 my call sign was Foggy Day One Six. So my men would call me 1-6, or they would call me LT. The only way you knew I was an officer was on the camouflage hat band that was around my helmet. It said LT Bartlett, written in pen. The only men that I got to know, even somewhat remotely, was uh, my platoon sergeant, uh, my radio operator, and my medic. I I, I got, and, and my medic and my radio operator actually reviewed my book. But they're the only ones that, um, I, I got even remotely close to. An officer could not afford to get close to his men because when the bullets flew, if you were ambushed or if you ambushed the enemy, couldn't afford not to be able to say to your men to give them direction. And, and sometimes that puts them in harm's way. Mm-hmm. You just could not afford, um, to be close to someone or to have close relationships
0: looking back do you think that was a good idea or an idea you probably could optimize do you think that was the way to go or if you had to do it again would you try to get closer to the men or not well that that was the training
1: that we received both in mm-hmm. ranger school and upon introduction to the uh to the division and to the refresher training that we received we were told not to get close to our men
0: okay i, know, I understood. You mentioned you're in the triple canopy jungle, you're on patrols. Um, What were some of the most maybe intense combat situations you experienced? And like, how'd your unit handle them?
1: So in dense jungle like that, if you had a man who either had a heat exhaustion or heat stroke, I had one, one man who was actually shot through the throat and was bleeding to death. And you're in three canopy jungle. And you could know approximately where you were on the map. Uh, And I called for medevac, but we had to cut down about 10 or 15 trees with a machete to open up a hole that was 10 to 12 feet in diameter so that if if you popped smoke, the smoke would just simply go up and hang in the trees and the the helicopter would not, not be able to spot you. So we had what was called a star cluster, which is a little bit like a Roman candle. Mm -hmm. And you'd fire this Roman candle through the hole in the canopy, and you just pray that pilot or door gunners uh, or crew chief would see you and come over and drop what what he called a jungle penetrator, which was basically a hook. And if the man could sit on the seat uh, at the end of the hook, you tied him onto the seat, in this case, the man could not sit on the seat, so they dropped a stretcher and um, came back over the hole, dropped the hook, and then we just tied the stretcher to the hook and they
0: hauled him up. Wow. So literally, he's being lifted through the, through the hole in the canopy up into the helicopter. My goodness, man. How exposed are they? If you're like in a firefight situation and you're literally you're dangling slowly up into a helicopter, that, that's a pretty big target, isn't it?
1: Not in Three Canopy Jungle. No, we had, uh, and we had pulled back from the contact. Okay. I had my men positioned uh, to continue the firefight while I worked with with the medic and one other man to get this uh, wounded soldier out because he was bleeding to death. And if we didn't get him out, he, he would have died. Wow. that is So it was a question of whether I continued the contact and continued to try to uh, overcome the enemy, or to save this man's life.
0: Right? Can you describe another situation that maybe you didn't train for, but experienced, and how'd you handle it? So, Ranger
1: School was the best insurance policy any officer could have, and uh, as I mentioned before, they they took you to the point of physical and mental exhaustion, and they taught you to be totally courageous. And to this day, my wife says to me, your greatest strength is that you are fearless mm-hmm. and your greatest weakness is that you are fearless. <laughs> but they taught us to be fearless. And when the bullets are flying overhead, you just drop to the ground and you bury your head in the dirt and you pray. But mm-hmm. as the leader, literally all eyes are on you waiting for instructions, waiting for direction, right or wrong. Uh, They want you to take command and to give direction, give orders. Sometimes that put men in harm's way. And there were several situations where we were ambushed and we had to overcome the enemy or die. And it was necessary to, to have men attack the enemy intelligently, as intelligently as possible
0: were there any specific tactics or strategies you found especially effective that got you prepared for what you experienced in the jungle?
1: Mostly it was the physical preparation. And there was never really one occasion in Vietnam when I felt like I wasn't physically able to be in command of the situation. I bet I was in in many cases a, better physically fit than my men were mm-hmm. and sometimes i had to be very cautious about that because the intense heat uh, uh, but training wise yeah i don't know i think there were a lot of little little techniques little steps that the little ideas that i employed i carried a, a, some rope it came in very very handy on a number of occasions to help us out of situations Plastic bags, I carried plastic bags that came in handy, but I can't think of anything uh, very specific that I wasn't prepared for. Uh, in, in fact, I felt like for the most part, I was very, very well prepared to lead that unit.
0: What's the worst situation you can remember finding yourself in? Is there a situation where you had your, uh, like, uh, your oh crap moment, like, oh wow, this might be it. I might not survive this?
1: Well, um, As I mentioned before, every platoon sent out an ambush every night. So I would take out one night and my platoon sergeant would take out another night. Now we knew that the enemy soldiers were monitoring us, they were always observing us. So in choosing an ambush location, we always made a fuss over two or three different places so that they really wouldn't know which one we ended up choosing. Mm -hmm. And on this one particular uh, evening. It was my turn to lead the unit, and we had to cross a rice paddy. The protocol f- to be followed was: you send two men across to the other side of the rice paddy. They check out the far side, and then they give you a quick two little blips on their flashlight with a red filter on it, and then you send your man across. And somehow, that you know, I thought I had done everything by the book, and perhaps that was the problem because when my men got totally exposed along the rice paddy, they opened up on us with mach- with automatic weapons fire and mortars. And um, se- several of my men were immediately- couple killed right off the bat, and others were wounded. And um, I immediately called for artillery support, which was my standard weapon of choice. And as the first rounds came over, I put my arm up on top of the rice paddy dike, which is like concrete. And um, a mortar round went off on the other side of the rice paddy dike. And a piece of shrapnel caught me in the shoulder and kicked me back. I lost my helmet and kind of uh, dazed me. And I got up on my knees and I noticed that all the tracer rounds were going away from me. And I realized that I had my back to the contact. And about that time, another mortar round went off in front of me. But fortunately, it was a muddy, watery area. So the round exploded after it had penetrated the mud in the ground. So I got sprayed with all this, I, I did catch the more shrapnel, but I got sprayed with all this dirt and mud and it kicked me back and I hit my head on the rice paddy dike and I was out. I was knocked out. So my squad leader uh, was able to pull me back and pulled all the wounded back and set up a defensive position. But I had blood all over my shoulder and my groin from the shrapnel wounds, and they thought I was dead. Wow. So I was put in the dead pile.
0: Really? Yes. I was Why you were knocked pile. out? Why you were knocked out? Yes.
1: I was put in the dead pile.
0: But were and, you breathing like they checked your breath for a pulse or?
1: not? didn't have time to do that. <laughs> didn't have time to do that. Wow. I wasn't moving. I was dead. End of story. So uh, after a while, I woke up and I sat up. But by this time, I'd lost a lot of blood and I fainted. And it's 10 o'clock at night. So nobody saw me. The wow. second time I woke up, I moaned and somebody said, Hey, he's not dead. And then oh, they I came was. over and they put uh, bandages on me. But Uh, They weren't we weren't able to bring in any medevacs because they didn't want to risk risk the helicopters at night. So meanwhile, the rest of the company came over to support us and um, we, you know, attacked the uh, the enemy force. But I laid there on the ground from about 10 o'clock at night until six the next morning when the medevac could be brought in. And my, my wounds were not severe. But I had lost a lot of blood. And that was because they kept coming over to me and slapping me in the face to keep me awake and to keep me from going into shock. Wow. Does but that I, work? I had,
0: Does that uh, work, smacking people? In the yeah, face? it works.
1: Wow. <laughs> it works, especially if you get slapped hard enough. Wow. Um, but I had um, a long talk with myself. And I decided at that point in time that if I should die, right at that point in time, I really had not accomplished, uh, what I had, I, I, or let me say that I had more to accomplish with my life Mm -hmm. and that if I died at that point, it, it would not have, it would not be meaningful. And, and that was the really the beginning of my own change of heart about the war and about what I was doing. And it was a traumatic moment for me and a cathartic moment for me as well. Wow!
0: So after that moment, you survived. Did they pull your dog tags off like they do when you thought they thought you were dead? No, because
1: I, because I, again, I woke up. They were able to stop the bleeding, and I just lay there until until six the next morning when the medevacs came in to take the dead and the wounded out.
0: So when you get medevac, how long were you in country before this particular um, event? About about five months. Five months. So you get medevac. Yeah. Where do they medevac you to? To a hospital ship on the Gulf of Tonkin. <laughs> really? So you get what, what was what were your injuries like? What were you dealing with after they checked you out? What, 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 Shrapnel in my left shoulder and in my groin. I had a concussion too. I take it like a concussion. Nah,
1: just a bad headache. A bad, okay. really very very bad headache. I'm
0: sure they would call out a concussion today. But okay. <laughs> so how long were you on the ship for? Three days. Then what happens after that? Light duty for ten. Okay. I
1: wrote everybody up for awards and then back out to the field.
0: And then how much longer were you in the field after that?
1: A total of seven months, seven, seven. months in the field.
0: So you did five months and then you came back in another two? That's right. It... Okay.
1: Well, I was out for about 15 days and then I came back to completed seven months.
0: Now, something like that. When you get trapped on medical service. Is that the Purple Heart, you win the Purple Heart? Oh, that? sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. sure. Got two of them. Two of them. Okay. <laughs> so let's fast forward towards the end of your play. How do you know the end of your time in country is coming up?
1: We're the night defensive position, and my company commander says, "Come to my CP yeah. command post." I walk over. He says, "Your replacement is inbound in a helicopter. You have ten minutes to say goodbye to your men, Whoa, and you're going the, back to the rear as a staff person."
0: Did you know that was coming, or is that just totally no surprise? No,
1: just that was the, the. I had ten minutes to say goodbye to everybody, and the, they brought in a light observation helicopter. It's, a, it's called a Loach. And it, it's a, a pilot and co-pilot and a, a seat in the back that would carry one or two men. I got in on one side and my replacement got in, o- got off on the other side. And then they flew me back to uh, uh, the battalion headquarters.
0: Do you guys like shake hands, fist bump, no. or anything like that? No. Say hello to each Never other. Met Never. Never met him. Never met him. He just gets out one side, you get in the other and you're That's gone. That's right. I gave know. my map.
1: I gave my map to my platoon sergeant, had a couple of other things that I just gave away. Because I was going back, I was going to be a staff officer. My my specialty was uh, my secondary specialty was the S one. That's the personnel
0: officer. When you get that ten minutes, I'm leaving. Right, which goes through your mind? Excited, not excited, surprised. What goes through your mind when they say, "Hey, you're out of here in ten minutes"?
1: I had enough time to say goodbye to the platoon sergeant, give him my map. Um, I gave my radio operator a couple of things that I was carrying that he always uh, admired, and my rope. They wanted, they wanted my rope, <laughs> so I gave my rope, and um, that was about it. I didn't have much time. I said goodbye to the squad leaders, shook hands, and that was it. That was pretty much it. I didn't say anything to the men.
0: And then of that group you left, did you keep in touch with anyone after the war in that group? Was that even possible? Like the, there's went,
1: there's actually a group called the Foggy Day Group. And these were all men who at one time or another were members of A Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Cav. And uh, we have an email list and we try to get together at 1st Cav Reunions, the headquarters, the, the, the annual reunion of the 1st Cav Division. And there are about 70 of us who are on that list. But we weren't, some of them were, my medic was there and my radio operator is there. But these were all members of A company, 1st Battalion, 5th Cav, at one point in time with the call sign Foggy Day. So they call it the Foggy Day Group. How often do you guys get together these days? Just, just at the reunion of the 1st Cav. And then we, we have an email list that we send jokes to each other.
0: What's it like running into like your radio person or medic? 40 years later like what, what is that like
1: well i've only been to one reunion and uh it, it, it was pretty traumatic i mean it was pretty 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 tough
0: we shed some tears and uh, a lot of storytelling
1: a lot of drinking
0: i bet when you're taking off there and in the, um, like i remember watching on youtube the end of what's that great series back in the day mash when they come up and is it like that? Like you're taking off and you see everyone from below and you're take, like you're, you're pulling away almost like the platoon scene when the helicopter is pulling away. Is it, is it it something like that?
1: Well, the nice thing about uh, a helicopter combat assault is that it's the only time that you got to cool off. Uh, Cause once you got up in the air, you know, it was cool and comfortable for about 10 or 15 minutes until you got ready to, to go on the assault. And, um, my platoon would lead every third assault. So I made, I made 50 helicopter combat assaults during my time in Vietnam. And wow. sometimes we even did it twice a day. Wow. I, when, when it was my platoon's turn to lead the, the assault, I always was in the first helicopter. I always went in heavy, two machine guns, M79 grenade launcher, radio operator, squad leader. Radio ammo bearer. So I took as much heavy equipment as possible. But they would prep the LZ prior to prior to landing. They would have an artillery preparation of about five minutes with a lot of artillery, and then we would be supported by at least two Cobra helicopters. They had uh, rockets and minigun, and uh, they would spray the perimeter. Uh, and they would remain on station after you landed to in the event uh, you hit an, a hot LZ. The The enemy had a technique of waiting for the second helicopter. They'd let the first helicopter land, mm-hmm. and the men would jump off and run for cover. But they would wait and then fire a rocket-propelled grenade at the second helicopter and cause it to crash and they did that intentionally so that they could destroy that second helicopter as well as the men who remained on the landing zone basically had to fight it out on their own because they would not allow the additional choppers to land on a hot LZ they would be d- directed to a nearby LZ and then try to come to support to support the men on the first LZ
0: man Uh, That's it. Takes incredible courage all the way around. Oh my goodness! You leave combat after seven months. How long were you in that administrative staff position?
1: So when I came into the battalion, I met with the S one, the personnel officer of the battalion. I told him that that was my specialty, and he said to me, "Well, you'll be coming out of the field about the same time as I'll be going back to the world." That's what we called it. Uh, And so, if you survive your tour. Uh, you can be the S one. So I I was I survived my tour, and um, I, I was understudying the S one for about three days on the job training. And on the third day, he came to me uh, and said, "Did you apply for a job at division headquarters?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Well, I've gotten orders here for you to report for a job interview." with the 14th MHD at division headquarters. And I said, what is the 14th MHD? And he said, I don't know. Get on a helicopter and go back for your interview. So I got on a helicopter, landed at division headquarters, started asking around, does anybody know where the 14th MHD is? And finally, I found a soldier who said, well, I think it's down that road about a mile. So I walked down the road, and I finally came to a tent, and out in front, it had a sign that said 14th Military History Detachment. Motto, you fight it, we write it. (laughs) And the captain who was in charge uh, had gone through every personnel file of every officer in the division, every junior officer looking for somebody who had journalism or a literature background. And I did. That was my major in college. And I looked around this tent, and I saw a television set, a refrigerator with Coke and beer. I saw cots, and I saw a shower. Wow. He offered me the job, and I
0: took it. You took it <laughs> after seven months in the jungle. My goodness, you fight it, we write it. it. It reminds me of that scene in Full Metal Jacket where I think someone says you're going to be a writer, and he goes, "Who are you, Mickey F. Spillane?" Like that. <laughs> Remember Gunny, Sergeant? You're not a writer. You're a killer. Um, wow, that's that's incredible. How long did you do the writing job for? So
1: I did that job for about five months. I was the division historian. We went to the division briefing every night, and um, our, our main responsibility was every quarter to write, the, to uh, edit, and and prepare a, a division briefing, a division report on lessons learned and battle actions that had occurred. So um, each each battalion was responsible for submitting a report in a specific format, but we needed 18 copies to be distributed army-wide. We didn't have Xerox machines, we, and and you, basically you typed it, and you could produce six copies with carbon paper. So we had to retype this document three times in order to generate the 18 copies. The other responsibility was if there was a major contact, The division G3, that's the operations officer at the division level, would say to uh, me or say to the the, the division historian, I want you to go out after the contact and figure out what happened and write up the battle. Now, this would be a major engagement for the division, something lasting two to three days with substantial uh, losses on both sides. And they would. this battle would have occurred over a two- to three-day period of time, and mostly at night. So at night, it was extremely difficult to try to figure out what, what was going on, what happened. So we'd fly out. I would fly out with a sergeant, photographer, and artist, and we would interview the people who were still alive. We would even go back to a battalion aid station and talk to anybody who was wounded and try to piece the puzzle together, piece the battle together. And um, I, I did that on two, three occasions. Uh, wrote up the battle program, uh, what had happened. And in one particular case, um, a company, American company, was decimated. A man, it was a company of about 120 men, and they had 80 killed and wounded. So it essentially wiped out that company from being an effective fighting force. Mm-hmm. And when the enemy, and this was an engagement with a regular North Vietnamese army group, not Viet Cong. And when the North Vietnamese soldiers left after the end of the battle, they took all their wounded and dead with them. So there was no body count. Mm -hmm. And body count was the metric by which American soldiers and officers were measured. So in In writing the report, I indicated that there was no body count, that we had plenty of blood trails, but the enemy had taken their wounded and dead with them. And the battalion commander and his S-3 refused to talk to me because I was just a lowly first lieutenant, and they were majors and lieutenant colonels, and said, if the G-3 wants to talk to us, he can call me directly. So the only person I was able to talk with was the company commander captain. I tried to tell him that I would report as accurately as possible exactly what went on. All of his platoon sergeants and platoon leaders had been killed or wounded. So, you know, they had really low-level people taking over in the battle. So I wrote up the report and uh, submitted it to the division uh, operations officer, and he threw it back at me and said, you know, any company commander that allows his his force to be fixed by the enemy and to lose so many people, that's where the blame needs to reside. Rewrite the report to make the company commander responsible for this loss and put in that we killed 462 enemy soldiers. And I said, well, where did that number come from? He says, that was the number. 462 enemy killed. So I I did what I was told and wrote up the report and submitted it. But as I mentioned, body count was the metric by which men were uh, officers were measured.
0: How do you think that affected what we did there? The outcome, how the how the perception how it was going just using a metric like body count? How did that affect everything?
1: Well, it 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 affected everything dramatically. Because in all cases, in all engagements, there had to be body count, enemy body count. If we lost or had, if we had an American soldier wounded or killed, we had to have a corresponding 10-time figure of enemy killed and wounded.
0: This particular report that you just discussed, they really made it up. They're like, yeah, 462 or whatever number you gave me. This is such a a lesson, like when big organizations... Go by metrics that don't really measure what's going on. You'll get those metrics, but it doesn't mean you're going to get the results you want, right? You could just say, Hey, how many, did, how many left-handed people did you pass today? 17. And you just, you start making numbers up and it's, and then you start lying to yourself and like, how the heck are you supposed to move things forward when you're just making numbers up and focus, not only focusing on the wrong metrics, but then making those metrics up when you're, they're not there. That's, that's, that's pretty rough. So how do you know your time in country is coming to an end? What happens there?
1: When you arrive in Vietnam, you're given a short timer calendar. And it's a drawing of a nude woman numbered into 365 squares. And every every man in Vietnam had a short timer calendar. Mm -hmm. And you can guess where number one was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you count down you count down and uh as you start getting closer then you uh, as a, i was a regular army officer so i knew i was gonna go- move on to another location after vietnam and an officer fills out a form called the dream sheet you put down where you would like to be assigned and i put down i'd like to be assigned to the west coast mm-hmm. which meant fort lewis washington or uh, fort ord California. And I didn't get orders and I didn't get orders. So I talked my boss into sending me to Saigon for three days to buy art supplies and to find out what my orders were. So we, my sergeant and I had a great time. We did a lot of sightseeing and drank, drank a lot of beer, had a good time. And then on the third day, we bought some art supplies and I figured, well, I better find out what my orders are. So I, I kept asking questions and I got to MACV headquarters, that's Military Advisory Command Vietnam, and they ushered me into a um, gymnasium, an actual gymnasium with the hoops pulled up. And on the floor of this gymnasium, there were these low wooden trays. And in the tray, this was Fortran computer processing. And, and there were car- punch cards. And every punch card was a soldier in Vietnam. So there was like a half a million cards on on this, or 500,000 cards in these trays in alphabetical order. So we went down the line to A, to B, to BAR, to Bartlett, to Bartlett Paul, Bartlett John, and they pulled my card and said, oh, you're going to Seattle, Washington. And I said, Seattle, Washington? Yeah, you're going to Seattle, Washington, Fort Wainwright. And I said, well, wait a minute. I I went to high school in Seattle. There's no Fort Wainwright in Seattle, Washington. And we had to get a directory and look it up. Fort Wainwright is in Fairbanks, Alaska. Whoa. That's, (laughs) trust me, that was exactly my reaction. (laughs) I went from 105 degree heat to, fortunately, it was the summertime when I got over there, Got got to Fairbanks, Alaska. Was 55 degrees.
0: Let's rewind a little bit. Do you remember the moment you got in a plane or helicopter and left Vietnam? Absolutely. Tell us Never about forget that. it. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I,
1: I began again talk my boss into sending me down to the replacement depot early. And I, I told my parents that I couldn't tell them exactly when I would arrive back at Travis Air Force Base sometime between May, I, I went to Vietnam on May the 9th, 1968. And I said I would be back sometime between May 5 and May 11. I couldn't tell them when uh, because they they also had a a quota uh, and the the number of Americans had exceeded the quota that uh, Nixon had established. Maybe it was Johnson at the time. So they had to get them out quickly. And So on May the 9th, I was able to get on a plane and fly back to Travis Air Force Base. Arrived at about 11 o'clock at night and I looked out the window of the plane. And I saw this fence next to the hangar. And on the other side of the fence, there were two people standing there. And I said, those are my parents. Wow. And they were. And my father, because he was had been in the Air Force as, as a full colonel, had some contacts. And they met every flight, every army flight coming out of Vietnam for about four days.
0: Oh, my gosh. You're there for four days.
1: For four days straight. That was They met every flight coming back. And I kissed my mother through the fence.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: I got to within about two feet of her before, because we were all dressed the same. I got to about two feet of her before she finally recognized me. And... uh, I kissed her through the fence and I, you know, processed through the, uh, uh, everybody else was getting on buses and going to Oakland Army Terminal. I told the officer in charge, listen, I've got my orders. I know where I'm going. My parents are here. And they said, okay, you're dismissed. Wow. So I spent two weeks at home getting my car ready to go to Alaska. And avoiding all of the uh, confrontation that so many, so many of the American soldiers had upon
0: return. Before we get to that, what was it like getting in the car with your parents? What was that like?
1: Well, it, we stayed at the. I stayed at the bachelor office quarters of because they were exhausted, you know. But for right. me, I was still wide awake, and I watched some television. And the next morning. I was walking around just getting some exercise, and they they have a cannon that they fire in the morning when they raise the flag, and I hit the ground. (laughs) And then we drove down to our home, which was in Monterey, and my father was driving at about 65 miles an hour, but the fastest I had ever gone up to that time was about 45, and I was scared shitless.
0: That is wild. And then getting back to what the average Vietnam vet felt coming back. What do you remember? What went through your mind when, like, you know, these heroes come back to defending, you know, our country? Maybe they wanted to go, maybe they didn't, but they did their duty. They, They put their life in just such harm's way. Some of them just, just dealing with horrible, just, just amazingly tough circumstances over there. And then they come back and then, you know, the level of disrespect to some of them. What do you think of that?
1: I've talked to a number of them, uh, a number of these vets, and they um, arrived at Oakland Army Terminal, and they threw away their uniforms, and they put on civilian clothes. But, I mean, they were still very recognizable because you had practically no hair, you know, the head was shaved for the most part. And they had some really tough times, some very, very difficult times, especially in San Francisco, I mean, because they all wanted to go party, right? And San Francisco is just right across the bay from Oakland. They all went in. They had money in their pocket, and they went to go party. And they just had some very, very difficult times.
0: For the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with what some of the Vietnam veterans returning went through, what would some of them experience when they're trying to… Well, the, the, the
1: popular opinion in the United States at that point in time had completely shifted, completely turned around. And after that Tet Offensive of 1968 that I mentioned before, the popular opinion was that we this was a mistake. And no, nobody wanted to die for a tie, if you know what I mean. And the popular opinion was that we were all baby killers. And, and this was after the Milai incident with Lieutenant Cali, where they murdered uh, hundreds of civilians. And, and there were other cases, too, that hit the paper. And plus... On a daily basis, they had photographs of every soldier who was killed in Vietnam on that day. So, I mean, we're we're all getting super tired of day after day after day today with all the Trump activity. Mm -hmm. And we have Trump fatigue, if you will, Mm -hmm. just because of all the news. The same was true about Vietnam, especially on the news programs every day. They, they somehow were able to capture the names of the soldiers and get photographs. And at the end of the news broadcast, they would roll this B-roll of all the soldiers who were killed that day. And you got that day after day after day. So the American public just said, "Enough is enough."
0: Yeah. Wow. Sorry, you guys had to go through that on the way back. I mean, it's so much more much respect to the the job you did over there. So how do you know when your Army service is completely done? You go to Alaska. So
1: I I was in Alaska for two years, and I was promoted to captain. (laughs) Now I'm 24 years old, and I'm a captain in charge of a headquarters and headquarters company, 24, 240 men, $25 million worth of Army material and equipment, all of which was uh, obsolete. And uh, after two years, I got orders assigning me to go to the career course back at Fort Benning, Georgia. So on the way to Fort Benning, I stopped in in Washington, D.C. at the Office of Personnel Operations. and I met with a major who was my advisor. and he was an armor officer without any combat experience. And I thought that was very unusual to have an infantry officer counseled by an armor officer. And he said, okay, Captain Bartlett, we have a wonderful career plan for you. We're gonna send you to the career course. You're in the top 5% of your class. And then we're going to send you to the Monterey Language Institute, teach you how to speak Vietnamese, and send you back to Vietnam for your second tour as a Vietnamese unit advisor. And I said, um, that's not exactly what I had in mind. That's not what I want to do. There's one job that is worse than being an infantry platoon leader, and that is being a Vietnamese unit advisor. Their their life expectancy was 30 days. So I said I don't want to do that, and they said, "Well, this is what we have you programmed for." And I said, "Well, I don't wish to be programmed." And he said, "Well, this is this is what you have to do." And I said. No, I'm, I'm going to resign. I'm going to resign my commission. And he said, well, listen, you have been back in the United States for 12 months. So if you decide not to continue, you're obligated for an additional year of service. So we will reassign you to Vietnam right now. Take the weekend and think it over. That was a rough weekend. Called my father, told him I wasn't going to be programmed, came back Monday morning, met with this same major. I said, "Okay, you go ahead and reassign me to Vietnam, but I want my resignation on file for 365 days from today's date. So this major goes and huddles with two other majors. And he comes back and he says to me, well, let's not be hasty. Here, the Army has spent all this money to move you and your family from Alaska to Georgia. Well, (laughs) I was not married, and everything I owned fit in my car. But for the first time in my life, I kept my mouth shut. And they said, We'll send you on down to Fort Benning, Georgia, and you can be an instructor or something. They'll find a job for you. And if you change your mind, Will reprogram you. And I, I said, okay. So I finished up another two years at Fort Benning, Georgia, had a really wonderful assignment there with the leadership department of the infantry school, which is a little bit like the management department of a college. And we developed a course of instruction that was implemented army wide called Leadership for Professionals. And I was the operations officer of that group. And it was a very, very satisfying final part of my experience in the Army. And it actually led to my civilian career, which was in publishing.
0: Congrats on holding your ground there. That is, that's phenomenal. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Wrapping up here, how long did it take you to write the book? Ten years. Wow. Because
1: I had a family to raise, and the only time I really had was... (laughs) I had a job that took me on lo- on coast to coast airplane flights. Mm-hmm. So I'd get out my laptop and I would uh, write on a chapter, and uh, it was amazing. My favorite author is a guy by the name of Stephen King.
0: Oh yeah, and sure. He, wow,
1: and yeah. he wrote a book, which was not a horror story, but it was called On Writing. It's oh, I'm reading it right book.
0: now. I, I, that's actually the book I am reading. Uh, it's in my other bag. I'm re- I'm in the middle of that right now. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. And in that book, he talks
1: about falling into the computer or his, maybe it was typewriter. And what that means is that he became so engrossed in the story he was telling that he blocked out everything that was going on around him. And that actually happened to me as I wrote. And I, I got so engrossed in telling these vignettes, these unusual experiences that happened to me in Vietnam. That, that I could I, my it was amazing how much detail my brain retained. and I, I could see the colors, I could visualize what exactly what happened to me. I would come away from these events as if they had happened to me, and I'd be sweating. I, I even smelled a couple of times I even smelled the smells, believe it or not. Wow
0: that's... But that's
1: how I wrote the book.
0: That is awesome. Robin, uh, like first off, the book is Ru- Vietnam combat, firefights and writing history. Robert, wrapping up here. Um, thank you so much for sharing all these stories. Uh, here's a question I ask all the guests. If you could have everyone listening, take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be?
1: So today it is very common to say to veterans, thank you for your service. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that with that statement. But Vietnam veterans are starting to walk in the boots of World War II vets and Korean vets. And, and there aren't too many World War II vets left. Uh, you'll recognize us because we like to wear our baseball caps with our insignias on it. And my suggestion, To anyone who meets a veteran, is to say the magic words, which are welcome home, and watch the reaction to those words. It will bring lumps to our throats and tears to our eyes. It's a game changer and so much more powerful than thank you for your service because it demonstrates that you have an awareness of what it was like for our war.
0: Welcome home. I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap this up. The guest is Robin Bartlett. The book is Vietnam Combat, Firefights, and Writing History. Robin, first off, welcome home. Thank you for joining us. Honor to have you tell your stories and share your insights in the book. If... People are looking for you and your book online, Robin. Where can we find you?
1: www.robinbartlettauthor.com
0: What I'm going to do is I'm going to put that into the show notes. And Robin, thank you. Just amazing people like you are the backbone of our country. And just an honor to have you on the show. Wish you continued success. The book continued success. And appreciate you taking some time to share your story. Remarkable.
1: Thank you, Joe been a pleasure. You're a great host.
0: Robin, thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: My, thank
1: You're a great host. Good questions. You brought me, uh I mean, I, I've done a lot of podcasts, but we went through it. We did, we covered all the territory. That was really well done. Thank you.
0: No, thank you. Your story is remarkable. Hopefully I did you justice. And You did. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Robin. Take care. Peace out. Appreciate, appreciate your care. Bye-bye.